chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, entitled, What Church Really Means. And uh, we're going to look today at the element of fellowship. Now, if you have been part of a, a Christian community for any length of time, you are probably familiar with the term fellowship. And most of the time, a fellowship is associated with some type of church activity, uh, typically where people gather together in the presence of what? Food, right? That's what it typically is thought of. Uh, there's potluck dinners and church picnics and women's teas. Uh, my favorite, when we have Super Bowl parties and have pizza and wings and other artery-clogging kind of items. Yeah, people like that. Very good. And then uh, there are also times where the event doesn't necessarily involve food, but it involves some type of activity or interest. Like, uh, there's a bunch of people today, you probably saw some motorcycles out there, a bunch of people from church that are going to go ride motorcycles uh, later on. People uh, fellowship through going on hikes or playing games, climbing rocks, uh, jumping out of airplanes. There's even uh, knitting groups, which is probably as dangerous as jumping out of airplanes because those needles are very dangerous. You have to be careful with them. Someone could lose an eye in the knitting club. Uh, and, and almost every, yeah, this is a tough crowd. And it's tough because my jokes are so bad. I know that. In, in most cases, uh, the events, they're voluntary. Uh, if you want to participate in them, you participate in them. If you don't want to participate in them, it's no big deal. Nobody really gets upset about that. And more than anything else, uh, the fellowship that we typically think of is normally focused on our pleasure. Uh, we participate in whatever event it is because there, there's some kind of benefit in it for us. Uh, we're going to meet new people. Uh, we're going to see new friends. Uh, we're going to get to eat free food. Uh, we might engage in an activity that we enjoy. Uh, some of us uh, engage in anything because we have this... Uh, this issue in our lives called FOMO, and uh, for those of you who are not as cool as I am, FOMO is fear of missing out. <laughs> and while all of that sounds great about fellowship, unfortunately none of that even comes close to what biblical fellowship is all about. Because biblical fellowship, it's not an event. Biblical fellowship is actually a union. And biblical fellowship is not some kind of, of optional thing that we get to choose, but rather it's actually a, a command that we obey. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, biblical fellowship is, is not about making you and I happy. It's ultimately about making you and I be more like Jesus Christ. So that's what I want to explore this morning. I want to show you how biblical fellowship works we're going to glean that out of Acts chapter 42. So if you have a Bible with you here, a Bible with you at home, uh, would you please open it to Acts chapter 42? We're going to, or sorry, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and uh, we're going to read 42 through 47. And if you're able to stand here or at home, if you would please do so in honor of God's word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of God who may be seated. Now, there are a couple of truths uh, that I've gleaned from looking over these six verses over the course of the last week. I'll give them to you up front as I have been doing most recently, and then we'll expound upon them. And it's this. Number one, fellowship, it demands intentionality. It doesn't happen by accident. It demands intentionality. Number two, fellowship ultimately creates unity within the body of Christ. And finally, number three, fellowship will unleash generosity. So let's work our way through that. First of all, demands intentionality. Verse 42 tells us this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And the operative word there is, is the verb devoted. And if you look at the, the original language, the original Greek uh, this verb that has been translated devoted was an extremely strong verb. It, it contains this whole idea of steadfastly continuing or intentionally pursuing something without giving up. And, and for those of you who are into to grammar, uh, which not probably a whole lot of people, but some people, uh, it's in the active voice and in the imperfect tense. Now, what in the world does that mean? When something's in the active voice, it means the, the subject of that, that sentence is actively doing something. That, that they're, they're, they're not just idly kind of sitting there. It's not something that's happening to the subject, but the subject is actively working. And so that's where the, the they, the Christians, are devoted. And the imperfect tense is, it means this, it's an action that's not only happened in the past, but it's one that continues now and ultimately continues into the future. And so this is an, an active thing that's happening not just at one moment, but it's continuing on. And what are these first followers of Jesus? What are they devoted to? What are they, they, they spending their effort on? Well, we're told what? It was the apostles' teaching, which uh, Pat, <clears throat> Pastor Brian talked about last week. It was the breaking of bread and prayer, which I talked about a few weeks before that. And finally, it's the fellowship that we're going to talk about today. And the English word fellowship uh, finds its source in a Greek word called koinonia. And again, if you've been around Christianity for really any length of time, you probably have heard that term before. And uh, it is a, a word that is, it basically means that a holy covenantal community. It, it's more than a group of friends. It's more than a group of people that are, that are going on a motorcycle ride or that, that are getting together to go knitting or, or that have come together to go to a church picnic. And in her article in Crosswalk.com, there's an author by the name of Jessica Brody, and this is how she describes Poinonia. She says this, it is a shared community that involves deep close-knit participation among its people. A divinely intimate 
holy unity among believers and between believers and their Lord. And it's the fellowship that the Apostle John talks about in 1 John 1, after declaring that he was an eyewitness uh, to Jesus' life and that Jesus is this historical and physical reality, John then goes and he shares uh, that the gospel is, is more than just the forgiveness of sin that leads to eternal life, but it's the gospel also binds people together, not only to one another, but ultimately to God. This is what he says. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy might be complete. You see, ultimately, this idea of fellowship, of koinonia, it is Christians connected with Christians who are connected with their God in this very active, very beautiful, very intense kind of relationship. And it's a fellowship that demands intentionality. It does not happen by accident. And it's definitely not something that the church can force. I cannot force you to fall deeper in love with Jesus. I can't force you to, to read your Bible. I can't force you to do a quiet time. I can't force you to pray. And the same is true that the church can't force you to engage in fellowship with other people. We can create opportunities for you to do it, but we can't force you to do it. We can help try to, to pull these things together and, and, and add some yeast to the mix, basically, but we cannot force people to participate in it. We do Bible studies and small groups and other uh, things in the process, but ultimately, it is the sole responsibility of every person who claims the name of Jesus Christ to figure out how to do this thing called fellowship. Let me give you an example of this. Back in 1989, uh, Kathy and I, we uh, got transferred uh, with my job to Southern California. Specifically, uh, we moved to a place called uh, Redondo Beach. And at that point, we had been Christians for about seven years. Kathy and I both came to faith in 1982. And, uh, but from that time, from 1982 to 1989, we uh, hadn't really grown very much in, in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And uh, we had definitely not grown very much in our relationship with other Christians. And we most certainly, we weren't devoted to this thing called the fellowship. I mean, we live back here in Harrisburg. We both grew up in Harrisburg. I grew up in Harrisburg. Kathy grew up in Steelton. Uh, I had my mom and dad. We had my grandparents and my aunts and uncles and cousins. And, and Kathy had her mom and dad and her grandparents and her aunts and uncles and, and cousins. We had some friends that were still around from high school, some friends that were around from college. We had a couple work friends that were going on. We had our careers. And you know, to us, that certainly seemed like it was enough. We had plenty of relationships. And as a result, church wasn't all that important to us. I mean, we, we went to the Hershey Evangelical Free Church, and we learned under Pastor Dave, an extraordinary guy. Uh, but, you know, when we felt like going, we went. When we didn't feel like going, uh, we didn't go to church. Uh, 
And when we did show up at church on Sunday mornings, uh, we would arrive right before the service started. And uh, when the benediction was done, it was like the, the school bell ringing at the end of the last period of school. I mean, we bolted from that place. We didn't hang around and talk with anybody or anything like that. We, we tried a couple of small groups, but uh, we came to realize that the people actually wanted you to show up every week to the small group. That kind of, uh, you know, kind of stifled us a little bit. We didn't want to make that kind of commitment. And uh, then one day, we find ourselves in Southern California. And there's no mom and dad. There's no grandma and grandpa. There's no aunts and uncles. Uh, I'm just starting to get to, to know my coworkers. Uh, Southern California is not a place where you like make friends with your neighbors because uh, they are so incredibly transient. You know, someone might live in an apartment for three months and ultimately be gone. So we didn't really have any friends. It was it was just Kath and I. And, and to use Pastor Ben's illustration from a couple of weeks ago, we were kind of that slow, smoldering log that was outside the fire, but I don't know that we were even smoldering because I don't know that we were ever actually in the fire. And so that's where we were at. Now, fortunately, we, we realized our plight. We, we, we quickly discovered that, that we were in a, in a very, very bad place. And so uh, we became very intentional about, about finding a church home and ultimately becoming involved in the church. And so after a, a couple of weeks of, of, of searching, you, you didn't have the internet back in, in those days. So what you had was these, there, there was a book called The Yellow Pages. <laughs> Some of you might remember that uh, book. Yes. And, and so you'd open up the Yellow Pages of the churches, and you know, in Los Angeles, I mean, there's a stack of churches like that thick, and uh, we looked around a little bit, ultimately we found a place called Oceanside Christian Fellowship in Manhattan Beach, California, and uh, we started attending there, but we did so much more. Instead of showing up like five minutes before the service, uh, we showed up about a half hour before the service. It was a young church, uh, they were meeting in a, in a uh, community center, and, and we were like, somebody must set up chairs, let's go find out what they do. So. We showed up uninvited, like, hey, we're here to help set up chairs. At the end of the service, uh, we didn't bolt from the service like we used to. We actually hung out and tried to talk with people. We went, kind of went on the aggressive. And, and we're, in reality, not super outgoing people. I mean, in a, in a large crowd, I, I kind of like to go and hide from people. And uh, so that wasn't necessarily natural for me. But we decided that was what we were going to do. How are we going to meet people? Uh, we didn't wait until uh, someone asked us to serve. We volunteered. And most of all, we pursued other people. And at that very first service, there was a couple that we met. Their names were uh, Tom and Janice Moser. And uh, we talked to them for just a few moments. They had some stuff that they needed to do, but we exchanged uh, telephone numbers. And later in the week, I picked up the telephone and I called Tom. And uh, I said, uh, hey Tom, would you guys like to, to go out this weekend? Would you like to do something? You know, we're brand new to Southern California. So, you know, it's 75 and sunny, it never rains in California kind of thing. And Tom, you know, we're ready to do something outside and we're excited. And Tom goes, oh yeah, that would be great. 
There's a really cool museum in downtown Los Angeles. Let's go to. It's Los Angeles. You know, you go to museums in like Chicago where it's freezing cold or something like that. Now, now you got to understand. Tom is about five foot two inches tall. He looks like George Costanza on Seinfeld. Uh, he acts like George Costanza on Seinfeld. He has a PhD in, in chemical engineering. He was literally a rocket engineer working for Hughes Aircraft at the time. And that's his idea of a good time, is hanging out in a museum. I'm like, Tom, Kathy and I really weren't thinking about a museum. Well, what were you thinking about? Well, I, I saw this uh, television advertisement the other day, Tom, for a, a brand new water park in San Dimas. Do you guys like to go to a water park? I'm a water park? I'm from Chicago. What's a water park? And uh, anyhow, we convinced them to go to this water park. And we had an absolute blast together. But it didn't end there. This, this relationship began to form. And Tom and Janice, they introduced us to, to new friends. We joined their small group. We began to go every week to that. We served together. We became more like Jesus together. And to this day, the Mosers are some of our dearest friends. We may see them once a year. They live in New Jersey now. We may run to New Jersey to see them. But the instant that we're back with them, I mean, it's like nothing has ever changed. And those three years in Southern California at Oceanside Christian Fellowship, they were some of the most beautiful times in all of our spiritual life. We grew like leaps and bounds because we were actively engaged in fellowship. Now, biblical fellowship, though, it doesn't just entail intentionality on our parts. It also does this amazing thing. It creates unity. Let me show you how that actually works. Look again at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. So who are the all who believed that were together? Well, they're the men and women who came to faith through the preaching of the gospel by the apostle Peter just a little bit earlier in that chapter. And actually remember that the, the town of Jerusalem during the day of Pentecost was, was filled with probably a half million, maybe a million different people who had come from all over the known world who had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to be able to, to celebrate uh, this, this feast of the Pentecost that, that was there that day. And, and so all of these people, they have, have come together, and uh, it's in a, a, just this beautiful, diverse group of people. And when we enter into true biblical fellowship with others, we are going to engage with people who are different than us. Uh, they might be from a different town. They might be from a different city, maybe a different state. They may have actually come from a different nation. Uh, they might have grown up in, a, in an urban environment or a suburban environment. They, they may have grown up in, in the inner city. Uh, maybe they grew up completely out in the, the, they're not even in the country, they're in the sticks. They were like the only people for like miles around. 
English may not be their, their primary language. Some might have more money than we do. Some might have less money than we have. They might have different political convictions, different <laughs> leisure interests, different social concerns, different dreams and hopes, and undoubtedly some differences on secondary theological positions. But there is one thing that we all have in common, and it's this. We are finite, sinful human beings who desperately need the grace and forgiveness that can only be found in the shed blood of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And that single truth, that should create in you and me a humility and a tenderness and a teachability and an openness that enables us to enter into deep relationships with people who are completely different than us. Every day, I am in biblical fellowship with 17 extraordinarily different people. Everything about our staff is different. There are two black men on our staff from the South. There's a black man on our staff who's from the Caribbean islands. We have an African-American German. That completely freaks out people. We had a, a neighbor here who came to complain about something one day who was German, and, and they came up to, to Pat, and, and so you know, Pat's this black man, and he's, he's talking to this guy, and this guy's giving him a real rash of garbage and about he's not happy that we've got a trail back there or something like that. <laughs> Pat can tell that the guy is, is German from his accent. And so Pat spools into German, totally blows the guy's mind. The guy has no idea what to say. It ended up they became really good friends and never gave us any trouble anymore. We had three Puerto Rican-American women, a bunch of pasty white people like myself. We have a widow, a couple of divorcees, several young marrieds, and a smattering of singles. Some of us have little kids, others of us have grown kids, some of us have pets who we consider to be our kids. Our ages range from the 20s all the way up to the 70s. Some have high school degrees, some have college degrees, some have post-college degrees, they have, you know, uh, master's degrees. We have lost parents siblings, and even children, everything from cancer, heart attacks, old age, and even murder. We don't all vote the same. We don't look at this COVID-19 virus from the same perspectives. We don't see all of the racial challenges that are going on in our world the, the same exact way, and we certainly don't walk lockstep in every nuance of theology. And I wouldn't change any of that for all the money in the world. I'm a much better person. I'm a much better pastor. 
and I'm a much better Christian because of the biblical fellowship that I share with the 17 other people on our church staff. We don't always get along. We don't always see things the exact same way. There are times that we hurt one another's feelings. There's times when we let one another down. I have had to apologize to members of our staff on more times than I would be willing to count. But it's all good. Why? Because I have learned how to love people, really love people, really care about people who are wildly different than I am. I have learned that my way is not always the right way. I've learned that my thoughts aren't always the correct thoughts, that my opinions aren't always the right opinions, that my particular view on theology isn't always the right view on theology. And most of all, I have learned firsthand how to obey Jesus' command in John 15 when he says, this is my command, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. <laughs> you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Make no mistake about it. Unity is not the goal of fellowship. It is the blessed byproduct of obeying the command of God to love one another. And when we intentionally engage in true biblical fellowship, we do it what? Because Jesus commands us to do it. Why do I love Kathy? Do I love her because she's, she's perfect and wonderful and she does everything right? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes she's not perfect and wonderful and does everything right. Why do I love her? Because I have been commanded by God to love her. I signed up. I stood before for Kathy, before my pastor and Kathy's uncle, who was a priest at the time, and I made a commitment that I, I would choose to love her. Love's not a feeling. It's a choice that you and I make out of obedience to Jesus Christ. That's the way that it works. And, and, and that, what brings unity to our marriage? Because I choose to love Kathy. And I'm far harder to love than she is. She's got to choose to love me every single day. I only got to choose to love her a couple of times because I feel love for her all the time. Because she's easy to love, but I'm hard to love. You see, biblical fellowship, folks, it's not an option. It's a command. Straight from the mouth of Jesus. And the love that Jesus is talking about 
the love which biblical fellowship demands. It's not some kind of general, feel-good, love for every and all human being kind of love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a self-giving love. It's a costly love. It's a love that comes from John 3.16. This is what? For God so loved the world that what? He gave his only son. It's a love that causes us to lay down our lives and our pride and our preferences for our friends. That brings me to the third element of biblical fellowship that I want to talk about. And it's this. That biblical fellowship, when it is lived out, it unleashes a generosity in you that you could never, ever have thought that you would have. Look at verses 44 and 45 again. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You see, when Christians become intentional in growing in the relationship with God and the relationship with one another. And when we begin to know other people intimately, when we begin to fully understand people's hopes and dreams and struggles and needs and fears and their past, it awakens something inside of us called generosity. Something that, that many people have experienced, something that others have yet to experience. And that's exactly what happened in the early church. Because they were together, because they were in relationship with one another, they became the, aware of the needs of other people, and they actually took action to deal with the needs of the other people. Think about this for a moment. There's 3,000 people that come to faith in Jesus Christ out of that half a million, million people that were in Jerusalem. Of those 3,000 people, most of them had come from faraway places. They were there, what, on a pilgrimage. They were planning for staying for a week, and they were getting out of Dodge, right? I mean, that's how it works with vacation. You, you go on a vacation, you've got X amount of cash, you're planning on being there for a little while, and you come home, right? These people, they go, and now they get saved. And now the question is, what are they going to do with that? Because the people who can train them in Christianity, where do they live? They live in Jerusalem. It's the apostles. And so these people, they're staying. They're not leaving. They're not going home. Where do they get the cat? How do they live? Where do they stay? What do they eat? On top of it, some of them were going to be able to go home. Why? Because they were going to be rejected as soon as they get home because they placed their faith in Christ. And so now they're in relationship with all of these people and they begin to have needs. And so what do people do? They begin to, to sell their possessions and their belongings, what? To meet the needs of others. Now, you've got to be really careful with this particular verse. Because people look at this and they see that they had all things in common. And some people have used this particular passage to say, yeah, we need to implement an economic system called communism. Communism is what? It's basically government-imposed sharing on absolutely everything. No one has the right to own anything at all, except for the ruling class who gets to live in posh luxury while everyone else lives in squalor. And we know that this passage has absolutely nothing to do with that version of that economic system called communism. Why? 
Because we see throughout much of the Bible that there's this idea of private ownership of property. And one of the places that this is most clearly seen is just a couple chapters later in Acts chapter 5. You've got this husband and wife by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. They, they become Christians. They're really excited because people are being crazy generous, meeting the needs of other people. They've got a plot of land. They decide that they're going to sell. And then they're going to give the proceeds to uh, people who are in need, just like a lot of their friends have been doing. Except they, they had an issue, and, and they didn't want to give all of the money away. So they decided to keep some of the money back for themselves. And, and Peter, uh, he approaches them about that. He approaches them about the fact that, that they said that they gave everything, but the fact that they didn't get everything. And this is what Peter says to him. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Private ownership. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, you could do what you wanted with it. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart you have not lied to man, but God. So Peter comes along, he affirms private ownership of stuff when he says, well, it remained unsold, it was still yours. And then he affirms the freedom that they could do whatever they wanted with the cash when he says, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? What was their problem? The problem wasn't generosity. The problem was what? They were lying. They, they were trying to look like they were giving everything away when they weren't giving everything away. So Acts 2 is not talking about communism, nor is it talking about socialism, which some people say. Socialism is basically, you know, uh, communism light is what it is. Socialism is where the government uh, owns and controls a lot of the production of society. I mean, that's what happened in Venezuela. Venezuela, what, they, they had a very productive oil industry, and, and then the leaders decided that they were going to uh, you know, we're going to take the oil industry and nationalize it, and the entire thing, what? It plummets to the ground. And so socialism, it allows for some ownership of private property, but its goal is what? It's to use the power of the government to redistribute resources in the way that the government feels that it's ultimately best. But what we have here in Acts chapter 2 is people being free be generous with their possessions without compulsion. And the biggest thing, this is a complete aside, but while capitalism is a great system, capitalism devoid of Christianity is a train wreck. Capitalism only works when people are generous, when people look at the needs of others. Apart from Christianity, apart from the, the restraining forces of Christianity, capitalism even goes absolutely crazy. Because what? People just accumulate stuff and accumulate stuff and accumulate stuff because that's ultimately the goal. But here what we see is we see this beautiful idea of people actually being free with their possessions and they get to, to, to just put them out what without compulsion. And this is what, what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 9, when he commends the Christians in Corinth for the gift that they are about to give to some of the poor churches. And what he says is that the, the Corinthians, they have said they wanted to give this gift. And so Paul sends some emissaries ahead of them. He says, hey, I'm going to 
you know, I'm going to send my guys ahead so they can help work this gift thing out that you've got planned. And so in the letter that he sends along, he says this, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an extraction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. See, God is calling us to be a generous people. But he's not going to force us do it. Instead, he gives a couple simple principles. Generosity begets generosity. And stinginess begets stinginess. And giving should be from the joy of the heart, not from guilt or compulsion. And I have witnessed this type of generosity over the last 20 years here at Living Waters, people have entered into deep, meaningful relationships with one another and with God. I, I have watched wealthy business owners take, take immigrant people under their wing and, and, and create work for these people to help provide for them. They don't, they don't just hand the money away, they want to give people dignity. And, and, and what gives people dignity? Dignity comes from what? It comes from work. That's where dignity comes from. And I've what? This is not easy for people to do. You've got to create work for people. That, that means you've got to do work yourself. I've been blown away. When, when I hear stories of, you know, so-and-so had, a, had a, a need for, for a vehicle, and, and then so-and-so gave the person their car. They did what? They gave someone a car? How does that? And, and these aren't like super wealthy people. These are people who just happen to have, have an extra car. And they give the stinking car away. I've seen members of, of small groups pay, pay medical bills for other people, pay legal bills for other people. There, there have been people in our church who open up their homes open up their homes. So, uh, I, I can remember a time there was a husband and wife, they separated, the husband had nowhere to go. He deserved not to have anywhere to go because he was a stinker. There was a family in our church who opened up their house, brought the guy into the house. Every morning, the man would get up with this guy, do a quiet time with this guy, make breakfast with this guy, help the guy realize you are being a complete jerk to your wife. You deserve not to be in your home. And over time, the light bulb actually turns on in the guy's head, like, yes, I am a complete jerk. And I need to do something about it. The same thing has happened. There have been ladies who end up in other people's houses because the ladies have been horrible. 
Or there's college students who've got roommate problems and, and people let the college student come in. It's amazing. I mean, people are opening up their homes. You don't know what you're bringing into your house. You may be all nice and wonderful and cozy here on Sunday morning. You may be a complete slob on Thursday night. I've seen those who have very, very little be incredibly generous to other people. There are some families in this church who don't have two nickels to rub together. And they're some of the most generous people I have ever seen. Sometimes we get gifts from some of these families. You know how incredibly humble that is? Unbelievable. There's a guy here at church who's got some, uh, many of you probably don't know him, he hasn't been around for a little while because of COVID, but he's got some intellectual struggles. He's had a, he's had a really rough I can remember one day he came. He said, Pastor Mike, I, I want to give this to you. And he gave me this baseball cap. A soiled baseball cap. That is one of my prized possessions. It's absolutely nothing. He wants to bless me. I would really like to be one. I have watched you guys do amazing. Just, I'm going to still probably bong with thunder here, but he, he says, you know, we need umbrellas and raincoats and stuff like that for the homeless stuff that we do. I, I come in last night after the, after the Saturday night, sir. There's like 20 umbrellas downstairs, and they're not like the used umbrellas that, that you know, I would pull out of my car. They're brand new stuff umbrellas. Somebody went and bought 20 umbrellas. For homeless people. Over the last couple of years, our compassion fund has always been full. We haven't had to turn people away other than people who need ultimately to be turned away. And perhaps one of our greatest moments happened a couple years ago when, when we became aware of a, an infant child that needed to be adopted. And a family in our church was willing to do it and they couldn't afford do the adoption, and I stood in front of all you guys, and I said, hey, we need 10 grand to help this family adopt a child. In like two weeks, we had $10,000, not from multi-millionaires, but from like 40 or 50 different people. Some gifts were five bucks, some gifts were 500. See, none of that happens by accident. None. It happens because men and women are intentional into entering into fellowship with other people. Many times people who are radically different than them. And in the process of doing life together, we find out that people actually have needs. And they've got struggles and, and they need help. And what they don't need is they don't need $1,400 from the federal government, which comes out of nowhere. They need to see body, flesh. Someone who says, here, here's not only resources, you don't only get cash, but you get me. That's what makes a difference. Well, we started a war on poverty back in the late 60s. 
Where are we at right now? It's a train wreck. You know, regardless of where your position is on government subsidies and all that kind of stuff, the bottom is, folks, it has not worked over the last 50 years. If we were fighting a war on poverty like we, you know, if we fought World War II the way we fought the war on poverty, we'd all be speaking German and Japanese right now. It happens. Stuff gets fixed when Christians enter into relationships with other people and actually give up that. That they actually care. That they sacrifice. And it's a beautiful thing. And this generosity wells up in our heart and we take it upon ourselves to bless other people in the same way that Jesus has blessed us. Now let me wrap things up by mentioning a specific group in our church family who actually gets this. Over the years, the millennial generation, those born between 1981 and 1996, they, they've taken a lot of shots. They are the butt of a lot of jokes. You go out to YouTube and you type in millennial parodies and man, you're going to You'll laugh like crazy, all right? Uh, their work ethic and their loyalty has been questioned. Uh, I read an article in the Times Union newspaper <laughs> that said this, that millennials are privileged, cocky, entitled, self-absorbed, lazy, and an impatient bunch who want cool clothes, sushi dinners, and financial support from their parents for at least the next decade. But that hasn't been my experience here at Living Water. The 20-somethings here at Living Water who make up our venture young adult ministry not only understand biblical fellowship, they're actually living it out. If you come to this particular service, and today's not a really great example of that because we had a Saturday night outdoor service which peeled a lot of people away, but if you come to this 9 o'clock service and sit in here in this center section, there will be typically two or three rows of millennials of our venture group. And they will have come here early before the service to hang out with one another and talk to them, each other. After the service, after everybody has left, here in the center section, they're all sitting there chatting away. I'm looking at my clock going, I'm going to have to be rude at some point and run these guys out of here because we've got an 11 o'clock service that's going to get started. They meet together in small groups. They have their own prayer meetings where they pray for you guys and for our church staff. They set up special times of, of worship. They serve our church and our community together in ways that I haven't been able to count. They've got game nights. They go hiking together. They go out for ice cream. And one, one of them is struggling. Everybody rallies around them and does whatever it takes. These guys and ladies, they get biblical fellowship. But none of that happened by accident. 
They were intentional. They were intentional about making this happen. Because entering into true fellowship where, where you are known and you know other people, it always requires intentionality and sacrifice. And that shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did to enter into fellowship with us. Jesus was intentional. He, he saw our greatest need. He saw us wallowing in our sin, our self-centeredness, and our self-sufficiency. And rather than allowing us to die in our pride, which, oh, we all wear so very much, he decides to do something about it. He leaves the glory of heaven to tabernacle with us, to engage with us, to, to be with us. And in the process, we're told what? That he experiences so much of what we experienced that he was tempted in every way, but did not sin. Think about the temptations that you have. Think about the struggles, purity, with addictions, with, with pride, with all these sins. Think about how hard those things are and how easily we fall to it. We're told that he experienced every one of those things. And yet he is without sin. And that intentionality, that engaging with people who, who weren't anything like him, and, and having all of those temptations come into his life, all of that stuff, causes him to execute the greatest generosity that has ever been known, that will ever be known. That holy, fully God, fully man, Jesus, on the cross of Calvary, takes upon himself your sin and my sin, and he bears the wrath of God the Father for that sin. That cross was brutal. Why? Not because of what the Romans did, but because of what God the Father did to his son. The fullness of God's wrath rained down on his son for our sin. And in the process, as Jesus dies and is ultimately raised again, he gives to us the righteousness that he earned. Not that we earned. And for all of those who will repent of their sins and receive him as Lord and Savior, he gives us eternal life. And he gives us hope not only for the future, but hope for today. That is what Jesus did for us so that we might be able to enter into eternal fellowship with him. And might we, out of gratitude and obedience to him, seek to enter into biblical fellowship with others, so that we might come to know them better, and they might come to know us better, 
so that we might know their needs and they might know our needs and in the process might we give of ourselves for them in the same way that Jesus has given himself for us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are a fickle people. Lord, we want things the way that we want things. And Father, what we have discovered through your word today is that, Lord, it's just simply, this, this life is not about us. It's about you, and it's about others. It's about how we love you, and about how we love others. And I pray, Heavenly Father, Lord, that you would burn into my heart and into the hearts of those who are here in this place today the great need to be in communion, to be in fellowship, to be in union with one another, Heavenly Father, despite all of our differences. Might we, we Lord, put all of those secondary things aside and might we learn to love one another just as you have, have loved us. And in the process, Heavenly Father, would you help us to bear the needs of others as you have bared our needs, dear God. And Lord, may we not only be generous within the people of God, but might we be generous to a, a, a watching world, Heavenly Father, so that, Lord, that they might come and, and ask, why are you like this? What has happened in your life that you are, are doing this? And, Lord, that we might have the opportunity Proclaim the gospel of goodness like Peter proclaimed the gospel of goodness. That we might be able to show them the grace that flows from your Son and that they might have hope just as we have hope. And it's through your Son's name we pray. All God's people said, Amen.